1: Hello and welcome back to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. Today, I have fascinating insight into how one CEO perceives risk. Mark Mullen made headlines last year when he moved his fintech Atom Bank to a four-day work week without cutting employees' salaries. It's a pretty bold move. And of course, the decision got a lot of attention. But Mark says he's not sure what the fuss is about.
2: It's much more logical than it might look. I I personally don't think it's such a brave move. I look at it as a much more logical move, right? Which is what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to attract great people. We're trying to motivate and engage great people and we're trying to keep them. And that puts us in a very competitive position or this initiative puts us in a competitive position relative to everyone else who's trying to do exactly the same thing. Because we're all competing for talent.
1: He talks about his peripatetic life. He moved around a lot as a kid. He attended 11 schools, and he says it's made him comfortable not knowing what's ahead.
2: My background at least taught me that, you know, you're not as in control of events as you'd like to think you are, because there's this illusion of control. And so you can do all the things that are in your power to try and shape the destiny of your career, you as a person, your business, whatever it is you're talking about. But it's a kind of an illusion. I have an ability to cope with that illusion, I suppose, that that enables me to succeed.
1: In our conversation, Mark talks about what makes a good employee, what makes a boss stand out. And since no one ever reaches the end of their career and says, I wish I had spent more time at work, he explains why it's so important to maintain a healthy balance between one's personal and professional life. And of course, why he switched his company to a four day working week. Here's my conversation. Mark, welcome to Out of Office.
2: Hello, it's lovely to be here.
1: So Mark, you used to be an executive at HSBC. Now you run a FinTech company. Your company was one of the first companies to adopt a four day week. Your employees are working less hours for the same pay. Are you a bit of a rebel or a risk taker? (laughs)
2: <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I'm certainly prepared, I guess, to look at the world and see not just what happens and whether it works or not, but what doesn't happen and therefore, you know, what, what might be possible. So, you know, you reference the four-day week. At the end of the day, I'm trying to get a, a productive output, high quality productive output for a given cost. If I can get the same output, at the same cost and deliver a better outcome for my employees, why wouldn't I? In other words, it doesn't require radical thinking. It just requires a pretty sort of cold hearted analysis of what's working, what's not working. And that kind of opens your mind to focus on what you're trying to achieve, not just on how you happen to be doing it.
1: How is it going? Uh, How are your employees doing and how is the business faring since you moved to a four day week?
2: You know, it's remarkable. So the business has continued to run. Customers are satisfied. We haven't dropped the ball. Nothing's gone wrong. So we've seen an improvement in recruitment. We've seen a corresponding reduction in attrition. We've seen a reduction in sickness. And we've seen higher metrics in terms of employee engagement. So more people looking forward to coming to work, believe it or not. Uh, Less stress in the business. Overall, right now, it's going incredibly well. We're very, very pleased. But we've just been through the sort of latest COVID-19 sort of chapter and Christmas. So it's not like we've got a normal period of time against which to benchmark it. So we can afford to be patient and just keep learning.
1: Would you have considered a four-day week if we hadn't gone through the pandemic?
2: Quite honestly, probably not, right? So we actually closed our office. I'm in my office today. But we closed our offices before lockdown was announced. Because one of the advantages of, of employing data scientists and analysts is that they're always looking at data wherever it comes from. Mm-hmm. And so we had already concluded before the government told us uh, otherwise that, that this was, it was a really good idea to shut the building down. And in much the same way that I've just described, you know, the four-day week, we didn't see any interruption to service. We're cloud-based technology core. So there was disruption to our employees as they worked from home and you know had to reorganize their lives, but but actually remarkably little disruption to the bank. And that opens your mind to the paradigm that we've all been, you know, I guess adhering to nine to five commute times, in the office meetings, et cetera, et cetera. And once you've sort of broken through that paradigm, asks yourself questions about what what other sacred cows or or what other tropes can be challenged and and how can we look for more ways to be inventive.
1: This is a pretty radical measure you've taken. I mean, other companies are allowing employees to work from home. They're saying you can be in the office three days a week, home two days a week, but a four-day week, that's a pretty gutsy move. Tell me your thinking about going to a four-day week. Why did you decide to do that?
2: It's much more logical than it might look. I, I personally don't think it's such a brave move. I look at it as a much more logical move, right? Which is what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to attract great people. We're trying to motivate and engage great people and we're trying to keep them. And that puts us in a very competitive position or this initiative puts us in a competitive position relative to everyone else who's trying to do exactly the same thing. Because we're all competing for talent. And so... You know, you can compete for talent by making sure you've got a purpose-driven organization, that you've got good values, that you've got good culture, good behavior. You can compete for talent through money, through pay rewards, through bonuses. You can compete for talent through the intrinsic sort of quality of the work you ask people to do, whether it's interesting, exciting, and meaningful. And you can compete for talent in how flexible you are willing to be to adapt to them. Because I've always believed that it's the talent, it's the people who get to decide to work for you, not the other way around. In other words, em- employees are not people you do things to. They're, things you, they're people you do things with and for. They are your business. It's bizarre that, that anyone should tell somebody that they have to come to the office three days a week. And I would remind anyone who's an employee, it's your life you get to decide whether that works for you. As an employer. I don't think that it's radical for me to think, well, I need to be appealing to you, not, not the other way around.
1: So when you decided to leave the security and stability of um, you know, a career at HSBC, what was driving you to make the switch to launch your own bank? Oh, lots of things.
2: I had uh, enjoyed my time in HSBC. I think I would had a fair degree of success. I was running First Direct, which is a great business, and and uh, mm-hmm. I was enjoying my life more generally. Um, but I was also in my mid forties, and I don't think I was immune from the sort of you know creeping midlife crisis. Uh, an opportunity <laughs> had come, which was you know an intriguing adventure to go and do something radical and new and different, and I felt as though that the temptation to stay was almost dangerous and that if I didn't do it, I would probably look back in a year or two years time and regret it because I didn't think that uh, the sort of, if you feel like, uh, serendipity would keep smiling upon me. And so there's this temptation of believing that, you know, the risk is to leave, but but honestly, the risk is often to stay and I viewed it as, you know, a bigger risk for my family than it was for me personally because you've got accountability to more than yourself. And if you want to go off on these adventures, then you don't want to drag everyone into the abyss, let's be honest. (laughs) Um, But it was less scary than it sounds.
1: What do you mean about, uh, you know, the risk is more to stay? Can you explain that?
2: If you work in a big corporation uh, today, especially one that's got what might be described as a legacy business model, inevitably those business models are constantly being reshaped and challenged, and let's call it what it is, shrunk. And at some point, you're, you, know, you run the risk of being a victim in that shrinkage. You run the risk of obsolescence simply because you've hung around for too long. So it's quite good to reinvent yourself. And the best way to do that is to you know, move around within an organization or failing that to leave and move to other organizations. And so the risk of staying is that just because things look great now, doesn't mean in 15 months time or 12 months time there won't be the next change initiative because banks go through them with alarming and monotonous regularity and you'll find yourself on the wrong side of one of those change initiatives eventually and I felt as though you know I was quite an expensive person in HSBC and I didn't want to be done to I wanted to be as much in control of my own destiny as I could be.
1: So you're trying to be ahead of the curve, and it seems you are ahead of the curve with well uh, you know in managing your own career, in the way you are uh, running Adam Bank as well. Where does this come from, this desire to sort of push the envelope to do things a little bit differently and to be daring? I think
2: that there's many people, I'm certainly one of them, who worked in big corporations, big businesses. Who are probably quite unsuited to it. I have a very high need for independence. I've always had a very high need for independence. I think it goes right back to my childhood to the fact that that you know my parents moved around a great deal, and so I was constantly leaving schools and joining new schools and and living a, a life of dislocation, and uh, and that creates a sort of a self reliance and an independence that I've always had, and I don't respond well to corporate bureaucracies or to if you like, hierarchies. Uh, but, but that's not the same as saying I can't prosper within them. I could prosper within them. I just don't think it brought necessarily the best out of me. And so, so you know, where does it come from? It comes from, I, th- I frankly think it comes from your childhood, at least it has in, in my case, uh, that, that desire to be, to plow my own furrow, as it were, to, or, to, or to pursue my own course. Now, for a lot of years, I managed to reconcile that with a career in HSBC because it's a very big group. There's lots of different businesses. There were lots of different places I could go to express that, if you like, adventure and and desire to learn. But ultimately, leaving was necessary as a form of self-expression for want of a better description.
1: You moved around a lot. I know you went to 11 schools. Is that right?
2: Yeah, a hideous number.
1: How do you think, you know, moving around so much has influenced you as a business leader?
2: Uncertainty and ambiguity are two things that are challenges in life and in business. And I think uncertainty is something that you know, everyone tells you, you've got to learn to live with it. It's almost axiomatic. Of course, you've got to live with uncertainty. And I think it causes different types of people, different levels of stress. Ambiguity is slightly different. It's in many respects more difficult. It's not the certainty that something will happen. It's the uncertainty that, that what will happen is even predictable. My background at least taught me that, you know, you're not as in control of events as you'd like to think you are, because there's this illusion of control, and so you can do all the things that are in your power to try and shape the destiny of your career, you as a person, your business, whatever it is we're talking about. But it's a kind of an illusion. I have an ability to cope with that illusion, I suppose, that that enables me to succeed. I'm not sure that it's general. I think that I deal with people who find change more stressful than I do and who find uncertainty and ambiguity more stressful than I do. And I, I suppose I have an ability to just let it, let it wash over you. Uh, the fact that you move quite a lot, both, you know, in, in life and in your career, I think prepares you or conditions you to, one, as I said, self-reliance. You just, if you're mm-hmm. a stranger in a strange land, you've got to be able to make your own way. I came to England in 1989. I was born in London, but then we you know, grew up and was educated in Ireland. And I came to Birmingham. And I didn't know anybody, uh, absolutely nobody. Um, and that's quite, you know, it's quite chastening to have to go and create a life from zero.
1: How old were you at that time?
2: I was 21, 20 when I first, when I, when it was my first job. And to sort of create your network from scratch and to create your, your life from scratch is, it's a good lesson. And then to have to recreate it periodically is also a good discipline because, you, know, you would like to think that you carry your CV and your experience with you. But actually, my experience is that, that you have to reprove yourself everywhere you go. And, and that's tiresome. But it's also a good habit that once again, you've got to demonstrate that, yes, I can do this. And yes, I know what I'm talking about. And you can't really trade on your reputation in the way some people think you
1: can. So, how did you build your network when you first came to Birmingham at the age of 20 or 21?
2: Basically, you've got to have a a sense of personal energy and engagement. I would like to think I'm not the least sociable person in the world. Um, (laughs) But I I also benefited from some brilliant people, some brilliant bosses, uh, some incredibly unselfish people who had no particular reason to look out for me, but who did. I, I was recruited by somebody who then subsequently was my mentor in my first company, was Forward Trust Group. And helped me get a number of jobs. Obviously, he thought I was talented, but, but there was nothing in it for him. And so the idea of mentorship, the idea of I, I, you know, some sort of guardian angel absolutely appeals to me. Because whether you're talented or you're not talented, you know, a help in hand can make such a profound difference to the future prospects of an individual. I worked for a lady called Jane Cox when I was in my twenties. She gave, she was the first person who ever gave me an out of cycle pay rise. Hmm. And it wasn't a huge amount of money, but what it was, was a demonstration of somebody going out of their way, breaking process to help an individual who worked for her. It was disproportionately positively impactful that somebody would bother. And I've kept that with me that, that, you know, sometimes catch I think there's an old adage, we just catch them doing something right becomes incredibly important and, and and to try and make some time for other people because I've had a huge amount of support in my career. so when you ask me what did I do, I think the question is almost is well, what did everyone else do because I feel as though I've had fabulous patrons all of all of the thirty two years I've been working.
1: you've been fortunate that you've had such amazing mentors who've uh, who've guided you. How does that influence your attitude about mentoring other people, young people starting off in their careers? Do you make that a priority? And, you know, how do you go about doing that?
2: Well, so so it's a two-way conversation, isn't it? So my best advice to anyone listening to this is just ask for help. I have very rarely met or worked with anyone who refuses to offer advice when they're asked. The question is, they're not often asked sometimes. So the most obvious prescription is remember to ask for advice, guidance, help, because most people are only too happy to share their experiences with you and they're only too happy to help you, but they don't necessarily get asked. I think that uh, younger people than me, (laughs) of whom there are many, uh, have an awful lot more confidence, a quiet self-confidence that perhaps people of my generation lacked. And they are more open and they are more engaging and more receptive to feedback than perhaps I was. And so they are more willing to ask. So, so, you know, there's no formula as such. Yes, you should be helpful. You know, it's not a ladder that you're trying to pull up behind you. It's a ladder that you're trying to build on. Um, because as I look at, at, you know, my career, I don't look at, at somebody who was the brightest person in the classroom because I was never that. And I don't look at somebody who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth, you know, was destined for, for, for success because I was never that either. And I think there's a, you know, that, 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 that there's a very positive message in that, which is that, that, you know, you can succeed from wherever the hell you come from.
1: So what do you look for?
2: I look for three things in people. I look for, I guess, a capability, whether it's IQ or whether it's experience. You know, the question I ask is, can they do the job? it's almost a base level question. The two more important questions are, do they want the job and will they fit? Um, And those two questions to me are the difference between successful people and not successful people in my experience. The second of them, do they want the job? Their personal motivation trumps everything else. Because people who have that drive and energy and motivation, that personal will, uh, they're very compelling, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. To me, they end up leading businesses, and they end up changing the world. The passengers don't. It's so, so that drive has to be present.
3: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you.
0: At QuickBooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: You know, everything we've chatted about uh, over the last half hour just goes to show you really care about your employees. You care about people. That seems to be really, really important to you. Again, I'm just curious. What is it that makes you put people first? Don't you? There's a few
2: almost hackneyed phrases that I found in business. One of which is, you know, we all, we, have, we put the customer at the heart of everything we do. It makes me want to be sick into a bucket because because <laughs> it, it, it required no imagination whatsoever to wheel that out. And the other one is that our employees are our most important asset. He's right, like, another uh, one
1: we can just put aside.
2: We can just put aside. But the strange paradoxical reality of both of those statements, I guess, is that they're true. Yeah, or, they damn right. well, or they damn well should be true. So by far the biggest expense in Atom is the employee costs. By far. And that means that we're trying to create a culture where an employee is not, uh, it, they're not troublesome. They're not a distraction from your job. They are your job. Mm-hmm. If you're in a management role in this bank, your job is to manage your employees and coach your employees and engage with your employees. It's, they're not, as I said, they're not, they're not something, they're not an annoyance. They're the point. They're the reason you have Mm -hmm. a job. And so everything that Atom is, was, or ever will be has come from the people we employ. It is so Mm -hmm. obvious to me that if you put a commercial hat on and, and ignore, if you like, any morality, if just based on what i said you you would try to be the best employer you could be you would try to have the best employees you would try to motivate them in the best way obviously wouldn't you but beyond that i'd like to think there's a humanism or a humanity in the business that we're creating here if we don't need to flog people why would you i don't i don't see any upside in creating you know, as sort of a type A business environment. We are interested in the outcomes of the business model. The outcomes of the business model are about customer engagement, customer satisfaction. They're about efficiency, effectiveness. Yeah. As long as we are delivering against those outcomes, our obligation is to do it in the most elegant, efficient and engaging way possible. So do I care about people? Absolutely. I care about people. What else is there in life? Truly. What else? I don't meet many people uh, who get to the end of their careers and, and, and look at, at, at the world around them and wish that they had worked more hours. Do you know many people who fit that? I don't, I don't ever, I've never had that conversation. I'll tell you what I wish I did. I wish I'd spent more time at work. That's the thing I most regret in my life. I think the opposite is true. Most people get to the end of their career and think, oh, my goodness, why did I spend all that time away from my family, my friends, my loved ones at work?
1: I read this amazing um, story about you being in Lisbon when you first announced the four-day week.
2: That's right, yeah.
1: Tell me, can you tell us that story?
2: Well, I was at a Founders Forum event um, in Lisbon. I was, you know, it's an annual, it was a joy actually to, to be allowed freedom, if only for two days in what is truly a wonderful, wonderful city and meet founders of businesses and, and, and tech companies from all over the world for a couple of days and spend time in their company. And so, so it just happened to coincide with, uh, you know, with the announcement of that initiative. Interestingly, a few years before I was in Madrid, Talking to investors the day that Britain voted to leave the European Union. So I have this Oh really? <laughs> I have this tradition of not <laughs> being in the country when big things happen for Atom, but there we go.
1: And you received or you didn't receive any emails and you were wondering what happened. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So
2: so it was a Friday, and I kind of I forgot. I momentarily forgot. And 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 when I checked my email on the Friday morning, there was none, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I thought you know, the server hasn't synced or there's something wrong, I completely forgot. So you've just spent 30 years or 32 years being conditioned to expect Monday to Friday. And then suddenly it stopped. But since then, I really love it. I really genuinely love having Friday. Sometimes I work at home, sometimes I don't. But the psychology of, gee, it's only four days is pretty dramatic.
1: Oh, yeah, it sounds great.
2: It takes a bit of getting used to but I recommend it. <laughs>
1: What do you do on a Friday that you're not working? I mean, this podcast is called Out of Office. So what's your favourite thing to do when you're out of the office?
2: I seem to have uh, bought a succession of houses. This one that we're living in is just the latest one that is a permanent decorating project. So, <laughs> so I'd like to tell you that I did something really interesting, but I really don't. I frankly decorated, or so <laughs> it seems or it feels to me at the moment. But other than that, you know, I stay in bed, relax, chill, Go shopping, do fairly dull things, but most important thing is, and I I think I read it somewhere recently, which is downtime and rest. That this it's so it's so important, and I genuinely believe it that you can truly recharge your energy and recharge your enthusiasm for your job, enthusiasm for work in general, and it is absolutely related to how physically well you feel and how rested you are.
1: So typically what do you do on a weekend?
2: Oh, I I I do normal things. We've got a dog, we walk the dog, we we do things like yeah, it's very difficult to answer that question actually in the context of COVID, because I think what we what I might have done relative to what I will do, two very different things. I'd quite like to get back traveling. I try like to re-engage with the world. And so so you know, I'm making now an effort to come to the office physically. Because it requires a physical determination to get out of the bed and get dressed and try and look half decent, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I just think it, it's good for people. So when we talk about flexible work and we talk about four day a week, that's not, a, that's not a, a, you know, I'm not condoning, well, just sit in your bedroom for the next year. No. Yeah. Get out in the world, re-engage with society. And that's what I want to do.
1: And I believe you play the guitar.
2: I play the guitar. I play many guitars badly, but I do play them, Yes. You've done your research.
1: (laughs) Great. Mark, thank you so much for your time and for joining me on Out of Office.
2: That's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: That was Adam Banks, Mark Mullen. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson and Momoi Ekeda-Helminska. I'm Malika Kapoor. I'd love to hear from you. My handle is at ThisIsMalika on Twitter, so send me a message. We'll be back in two weeks. Stay well. And as always, thank you for listening.